What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I'm standing by you because that perfect cube, that does nothing, is about to be the single biggest failure in the history of personal computing. Tell me something else I don't know. It's too bad that nothing ever came of Steve Jobs. The kid did have a lot of promise. Michael Fassbender as Jobs in that clip, along with Seth Rogen as Jobs' Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. Coming up, our review of the film Steve Jobs, directed by Danny Boyle, with a script by Aaron Sorkin. Plus, the top five director back-to-back movies. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. thought all of our listeners knew us so well, Josh, and yet there was one of them on Letterboxd this week suggesting that we should pay tribute to Chantal Ackerman, the filmmaker who just passed away last week, by watching and reviewing one of my blind spots, and I've listed it as a blind spot, Jean Dielman. Unfortunately, Jean Dielman is three hours and 45 minutes long. That's a tad bit over your limit. A tad. So that isn't happening this week. We will not get to that Chantel Ackerman movie, but hopefully at some point down the road, we'll be able to pay tribute to her. In the meantime, Mubi, one of our beloved partners, is paying tribute to her. They're going to remember her by playing her Joseph Conrad adaptation, All Mayor's Folly. They say the film cannot be seen anywhere else in the United States, working freely from Joseph Conrad's debut novel. Ackerman tells the story of a European trader in 1950s Malaysia whose dreams of a Western life for his Malay daughter slowly lead to destruction. And speaking of lives seeming to go slowly into destruction. They're also showing A Woman Under the Influence, Cassavetti's film starring his wife, Jenna Rollins. Even after 40 years, Cassavetti's raw masterpiece about the American family continues to sear and inspire. At the center, his wife and muse Rollins gives one of the most extraordinary performances ever filmed. I second that. I love that performance and that movie. One more movie recommendation here for you. It's Take Out. The indie world was taken by storm this year by Sean Baker's Electric Tangerine. It is one of my favorite films of the year so far. Before tackling L.A., though, Baker took on New York with his slam dance selected second feature, which was co-directed by Tangerine collaborator Shai Ching So. This explores a side of the Big Apple mostly seen in the background of movies and life. You should be all over that film after your love for Tangerine. Takeout sounds good to me. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Our recent Ridley Scott deathmatch poll between Alien and Blade Runner continues to haunt the show as we devote this week's top five to back-to-back movies, Alien and Blade Runner. Fair to say, Scott's two most iconic and influential films were made back-to-back in 1979 and 1982. Scott's two for one of the more impressive back-to-back efforts in movie history. He does have some pretty stiff competition, though. We'll get to that top five later in the show. But first, under Steve Jobs, Apple followed the iPod with Mac OS X. Not a bad back-to-back accomplishment. Does Danny Boyle's new film about the tech visionary measure up? What if the computer was a beautiful object? Something you want to look at and have in your home. And what if 
instead of it being in the right hands, it was in everyone's hands. We'd be talking about the most tectonic shift in the status quo since... Ever. I'm begging you to manage expectations. Have I ever let you down? Every single goddamn time. <laughs> then I'm due. Your Apple stock is worth $441 million. And your daughter and her mother are on welfare. She's not my daughter! You must be able to see that she looks like you. We will know soon enough if you were Leonardo da Vinci or just think you are. You're the only one who sees the world the same way I do. No one sees the world the same way you do. When we previewed this fall's lineup of coming films, along with Michael Phillips, maybe about a month ago now, Adam, on the show, Michael and I both had a similar question about Steve Jobs. Whose movie was this going to be? There were three very clear creative forces at play here. We have director Danny Boyle, screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, and film spotting madness champion Michael Fassbender. Trademark. Perhaps that's who you were rooting for there, Adam. We'll find out. I would say, after having seen Steve Jobs, we just came from the screening, that it clearly belongs to Sorkin. His fingerprints are all over this thing in terms of the smart, witty repartee that we've come to expect. There is so much walking and talking in this film that my feet were sore by the time it got done. And also for the narrative structure, this is a film that is dominated by its shape. Essentially, we get three product launches here in the early career of Steve Jobs. And before each launch, Jobs is visited by people who are either colleagues of his or, as history goes on, people from his past, the same people. And they have confrontational conversations with him. These smack of similar conversations we've seen in the likes of Sorkin's television efforts. The West Wing is the one that I'm most familiar with that before he did Sports Night. Most recently, he's been the producer of The Newsroom, which I think you're familiar with, Adam. Film-wise, of course, most famous for The Social Network, but also wrote the screenplay in 1992 for A Few Good Men and, most recently, 2011's Moneyball. Some people would say, this is a Sorkin movie, I'm all in. Some others might say, this is a Sorkin movie, get me out. He does have his fans and his detractors. So maybe we can start, first of all, by seeing if you agree with me that the movie largely does belong to him, and then explore a little bit whether you think that is to his credit, or as I was texting Debbie on the way back from the theater here, back to the WBEZ studios, as she said to me, I don't like that guy anymore. Somebody needs to rein him in. Hmm. Well, this is a still processing review. I feel like we do need to throw out that disclaimer. Sometimes these are my favorite reviews when we've both just come from a movie and we can have a good chat about it. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do this movie or the character Steve Jobs as much justice as he deserves. But your question is a provocative one, and I think we probably see it differently. Having not been able to really dwell on it, Josh, I think that there are certainly elements of this film that smell of Danny Boyle. I think people would associate certain visual touches, maybe even some hints of sentimentality that might feel like they come from Boyle. I think there's no doubt that there is something to the repartee, the walking and talking. Nobody would mistake this movie for anything but an Aaron Sorkin film. And yet, the answer to your question is, I think it's a Michael Fassbender film. And everyone out there can joke, well... Adam, you are his biggest fan, and there's a restraining order out against you and all those things. But I'm actually very surprised that I'm saying that because it's not really a flashy performance. You have all. the physical evidence to back you up. He's in 
I believe, every scene. Yeah, which makes sense in what we learned about the character and maybe what we already knew about Steve Jobs coming in. There's a sense of control, and he controls this film. I think it's to the movie's credit that both Boyle and Sorkin are out of the way enough that this movie becomes about the people. I really do think it's about the people, not about the flashiness. The pyrotechnics of Aaron Sorkin's dialogue that sometimes can overshadow what the characters are doing and really having any sense of humanity about them. And I love The Social Network, but that's a movie where, as much as I do think it's Shakespearean, and I think this movie has elements of Shakespearean drama to it as well, you're still really getting caught up in some of those snarkier lines that really smart people are able to say, usually in confrontational moments. Again, that's all here, and yet I never felt like it was about that so much as really trying to get into the heads of these characters. And whether or not we understand more about Steve Jobs by the end, I think both Boyle and Sorkin realize that that's a futile effort and that the best we can do is see him in action. And that's why I love the structure. I really do appreciate the structure of this film building around those product launches and then withholding from us ever actually seeing those products on display or him actually perform when the previous 30 minutes in each instance has been all about building up to that. So I think the structure works. I think there is still a lot about this film I want to think about. I don't know how much I love it. I do know that I liked it. And I do know that Fastbender's performance and how it works in conjunction with Aaron Sorkin's script is a big reason why. Yeah, I should probably start by saying that up to this point, I've been a pretty big Sorkin fan. I've liked his work. I like what he brought to the social network and thought it was much better in balance with what David Fincher and Jesse Eisenberg, for that matter, were doing with that film. He just he dominates here. I felt his presence in every scene. And I think he maybe dominates isn't the wrong word for Fassbender, but he doesn't allow Fassbender to create the sort of characters that we've come to really expect from him. And then we could get back to his performance. Danny Boyle, I mean, I I think people are going to forget that Danny Boyle ever directed this film. They let him paint on the walls in one scene. That is, you're right, a visual flourish that kind of comes out of nowhere and and you suddenly say, oh, that's right, Danny Boyle directed this. There's some cuts too, some very pointed cuts. Some cuts. cuts. And and I think, you know, he's probably behind, especially at the beginning, some witty POV shots that are from the Macintosh computer Mm -hmm. looking at Jobs and some of his colleagues. And he returns to that a few times. So that's a nice touch. But, But really, this thing is governed by its screenplay and it's governed by its dialogue. And it made me think, and this is where we can get to, to Fassbender's performance, maybe. What's the real purpose of dialogue? I mean, it it serves multiple purposes in a, in a film, of course. It, it's most basic. It can, it can function the plot. We get a little bit of that here. Uh, it, it can explain the theme. I, I think we get maybe too much of that here, as much as they have a theme. You're, you're right. They're not saying uh, this is exactly who Steve Jobs was, though they get uh, in the third section, they get a little explaining. For sure. So it does that. I think a more important function of dialogue, and here's where Fassbender is trumped. Can it illuminate a character without explaining the character? The dialogue has to work in concert, in other words, with the actor and allow them to do some of that work as well. And I think it's doing too much of the work here for Fassbender. It's He's entertaining. He's witty, as I said, and and a smart guy, clearly, and can pull references from here. So he's fun to watch. And that brings to mind another function of dialogue, which is 
to entertain. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Sorkin has been, yeah. an entertainer. And don't you think this and, is entertaining, most of the dialogue? Because um, I did. For a while. I also, this is the first time I understood the critique of Sorkin's um, work as being exhausting. Uh, it did, I felt that a little bit as well. It did get wearing, wearing on me in ways that other films of, of his hasn't. And I think the structure has something to do with that. For me, the structure, I did appreciate it the same way you did at first. It's like, okay, th- this is cool. I like how these are mirroring. And here comes Jeff Daniels again. And here comes Seth Rogen again. And they're going to have- Michael Stuhlbarg. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg. And, and these the supporting Actors, I think, handle, and maybe it's because we only get them in limited amounts, Sorkin's dialogue a little bit better than Fassbender does. But eventually it became contrived, the structure. Uh, And certainly by the third act, uh, the whole thing had begun to wear me out. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film, Steve Jobs, which is currently out in limited release. It opens in Chicago this weekend and it will go into wide release next weekend. The movie did, as I noted, exhaust me as well. And the fact is, I'm just personally in a headspace right now where I would prefer to go to a movie that didn't have the sort of propulsion to it that this movie has. And it's not even so much the redundancy, which you noted is is built into the structure here. There's no doubt about that. But just the tempo of it, the pace of it, the adrenaline rush of getting ready for a big show, getting mm-hmm. ready for a performance, that is in every scene of this film. Because as we said, it's very much about those performances or leading. Did up you feel to it as much the third time, though, as you did that first time? Because the first time I, I felt that pressure, like, you, you know, you're going out in front of these shareholders mm-hmm. and you're, you're making claims to change the world. And, you know, that intensity was there and the repetition for me lessened it. Yeah. And then the irony is that the third time we see it, he really is doing those things. Mm-hmm. And the pressure has mounted and built. But for me, it had the in- opposite intended effect where the familiarity of it alone released some of that tension. I can see that, but this is where I really wish I did have more time to think about this movie because one of the things that worked for me, Josh, is actually seeing the film and seeing that structure adding up to something more than just being a biopic of any kind, even in its innovation, if you will, in terms of the structure. This isn't a movie, even though it dances around all these subjects or sometimes doesn't dance around them at all. It actually just really comes out and says it to its detriment at certain points. It's not about genius. It's not about creativity. It's not even, as one character says, and I'm paraphrasing here, something about how you can do good and still be a genius. There are times where I felt like I was sort of watching Whiplash in terms of I a character of who... I thought Whiplash at the end as well. And yeah. It has that intensity, but a character who is always building up to a performance and who is trying to be... A visionary who wants to be the best and similar to that drummer he depends on as much as he hates it Steve Jobs does depend on other people in order to be that genius so that lack of control is very much an aspect of both films but for me I did see it as about something greater and this is where again I can't fully articulate it it seemed to me that the movie is as much for Sorkin and Boyle and maybe Fassbender as much about time And that whole cyclical nature of it and the way that you have this inherent contradiction in a figure, a visionary figure like Jobs, who is constantly talking about how he's going to eschew the past and not pay any attention to it. And it's all about this product now and changing the world and changing the future. But if you look at his ads, he's always calling on cultural touchstones and he's going back to these icons from our past. He can't escape it. And the dialogue and the screenplay can't escape it either. It's always calling 
back into question his own past, his own personal past. And so those things play together and mesh a little bit. And the way that we see these characters, all these supporting characters you mentioned, how they all age before our eyes a little bit. Definitely, Fassbender does as Jobs, to the point where at the end, he really does look exactly like the Jobs that we've all seen in those Mac presentations and on the cover of magazines. And yet they're all basically having the same conversation over and over again, Josh. That sense of no matter how they change, no matter how much they try to change who they are, they're stuck in a bit of a cycle. And I don't know how profound that is, but it struck me as profound in the moment. That notion of these characters wrestling with and struggling with and fighting against time. I don't know. Maybe this is going to come up in the top five. Maybe I'm just so hell-bent on making every movie about mortality my favorite subject, that I even see this movie as very much about that. Well, he can't afford... The depiction of Jobs here is as someone who, even as he does call upon the past, the accomplishments of the past in his marketing, and it very much separates him as a man of marketing and as a man of product innovation. Mm -hmm. But even as he does that in terms of his marketing, he can't afford to look in the past personally because... There are failures there. Mm -hmm. There are professional and technological and business failures, and there are the failures in terms of this estranged daughter that he has. So I think the movie especially touches on time in that sense, in that this is a guy, he's somewhat like an athlete. You know, you you just, you forget the game you lost. Yeah. And you move ahead to the next game. If anything, that was his genius, probably. That he was able to do that. His lack of sentimentality. Yeah, yeah. And I think the movie does capture that. And to a degree, I found that interesting. Again, do do we get that in the first of these three segments enough? Or does it need to be expanded upon in the second and third? That I don't know. We should talk also about some of the other performances. Because as I said, I think people like... Stuhlbarg and Rogan are quite good mm-hmm. in the scenes they get, especially how they, Jeff Daniels as well, yeah. who is a Sorkin guy, they manage to inhabit the witticisms within their characters' personalities. Absolutely. The other actor who I think is really underserved, though it's for a different reason than I think Fassbender is underserved, is Kate Winslet as Joanna Hoffman, who is Jobs' director of marketing, I believe, but follows him through the different phases of his career and two different companies as well. So really a lifelong business partner of him. And we do see her function to a degree in that role. We see her organizing these product launches and shepherding him backstage. She's almost more like a personal assistant, even though she's given a much more important title. Yeah. And I think that trickles in as well. The main function she has in this film is to be his guilt trip over how he has treated his daughter and i think she's a conscience in general product wise even as well there are times where she is that force eh, but, but she's, you're right she's she's willing to bend the ethical lines pretty easily i know but she's gonna on. call them out on it. early on she'll yeah. she'll say what's happening but she's gonna let it happen uh, there was just something about having winslet be the function of feminine conscience and motherly I don't want to say scolding because she doesn't quite take that approach, but it's part of a larger problem that is probably intentional. All of these other characters are circling around and serving this reflection of jobs. And, And a biopic has to do that to a degree. We have to focus on one person. But just the way it echoed, how could you not be egotistical if every time you're going to launch a product, you've got the same four people from your life coming in to tell you about 
even if it's how you've yeah. ruined their lives, the implication is how important you they are. They need something from him that he doesn't seem interested in getting from them. Not at all. Not at all. And and so to go back to Winslet, I, I felt that was underserving her in pretty much having that be her only function is try to get him to, to what is the most ham-fisted element of the movie. I, I think we'd have to both agree on that. The daughter subplot, which it's not even fair to call it a subplot. By the end of the film, it takes over. This has no longer Mm -hmm. become a film about the technological advances. It is more about the maturation or lack of maturation on the part of this Steve Jobs with his daughter. That's something that I don't think ever quite is interwoven. Sorkin had a similar problem in Moneyball, where the Brad Pitt character was also dealing with responsibilities as a father. And I felt like that was shoved in a little bit to what was more interestingly managed material. The same thing happens here, except it's given a ton more screen time and certainly is where the movie gives itself over completely in the end Mm -hmm. in a sequence that I thought felt flat. Yeah, I agree that it does. I disagree with you on how unsuccessful it is overall. I think there are certain elements of it in certain scenes that work very well. Similarly, I think there are some specific moments and scenes that I won't get into because they're at the end of the film and a little spoilery that I think are pretty awful. And I just Were wish you surprised that... this ended where it did. Can I I'll yeah. just ask you? No, that. I am, especially because it flies in the face of everything the movie has been up to that point in terms of what it's withheld from us, a certain adulation. It all of a sudden at the end kind of demands it of us. And I do have a problem with that. And I do have a problem with just how sentimental it gets in some of those final moments. I think that Sorkin maybe could have been a little bit more ruthless there. My biggest problem with Winslet, I really didn't have an issue with her kind of being a little bit of the scold because I see her to an extent as an equal. And I think Sorkin actually over his career has been pretty good about having female characters who are equal, certainly, if not more intelligent and more talented and more professional than the men that are often the stars of the picture. So I didn't have a problem with that. My biggest issue with Winslet was just how often I saw that supposedly Polish accent slipping. And <laughs> hey, I hate to point out the no trivialities, but about well, accents. But yeah. if you do have a Polish accent, <laughs> I haven't accent, won an Oscar yet, Josh. <laughs> yeah, there okay. you go. Well, let, let's just say this. If you don't have a Polish accent in 1984, theoretically, you should not have one in 88. Exactly. Right? It actually gets okay. stronger as she gets <laughs> it older, does. I, which doesn't really make any sense. But let me tell you how I do think. Fassbender's performance works in conjunction with Sorkin more than you do. I'll give you some examples where I think it really comes through. First, I'll say that I did appreciate about Fassbender's performance that he really does embody jobs just with slight alterations physically and vocally to the Fassbender persona, if you will, the Fassbender we're used to seeing in roles where he's not playing as much of a character, where he's playing more of a leading man. I liked that, but I also really liked the way there were certain lines and moments that could have been these really juicy bits that an actor could sink his teeth into and deliver them with that kind of relish. Eisenberg does it, and he does it to good effect in The Social Network, but instead what we get here are moments like the one where a character is having a confrontation with him, of course, and he just comes out and says, I never really liked you. I've always disliked you. And Job says, that's a shame. I always liked you. And the way it's delivered is not as sentimental as I just delivered it. It has that kind of crackle on the page. It could. It's a very sharply written line and a very sharply written bit of banter. But Fassbender doesn't deliver it like that sharp bit of banter. It doesn't come 
forth Josh as either mean, particularly mean and snarky, nor is it overly sentimental and emotional and heartfelt. It's just human enough. It's just vulnerable enough to underscore the fact that he does really mean it. And there is something more to him than just that character who has been constantly pushing people aside. And I think that really is because of the performance. I think a different actor, 10, 20 different actors would have given a very different line reading there. I also like Josh, how early in the film, we see him a couple of times use a particular vulgarity, a particular phrase that many of us, unfortunately, I'm speaking of myself, like to use when we're angry and we like to admonish someone and tell them off. And coming from jobs, it never has the type of anger or resentment or hostility that most of us have when we use that phrase. It has a precision to it. It has the precision of a bit of code. It has a purpose, nothing more. He uses it to get what he wants from someone or to get them to behave a certain way, nothing more than that. And I think that that shows a real understanding of this character. So Fassbender is one of the best working actors today. If anyone's going to be able to layer some humanity into Sorkin's one-liners, that's not fair. They're more than one-liners. But to Sorkin's witticisms, it would be him. Absolutely. You're right. But Sorkin does not usually write full-bodied characters. Even The West Wing, which is a show, as I said, that I enjoyed and had years to develop characters, in the way that TV does, we got to know them, and you would think of them as full-bodied people. But when you watch on the screen, watch the text, they're lines of dialogue. They're speaking like I mean, that show was an entertaining, well-done op-ed piece. And I enjoyed it for that. But I didn't buy it as any sort of character study, really, mm. of any of them. I did. Now, the one, the one that does work in that way, I think, is The Social Network. Similar to Steve Jobs, that's a movie that is least about the technology that it takes its title or its subject matter from. And Eisenberg managed to make that work. It was just a pairing, perhaps, of the Sorkin sensibility and the personality it was trying to depict. This brilliantly smart, acid-tongued, insecure guy, and they found the perfect actor to do it. You're right. I wouldn't say that Fassbender is giving a bad performance, but he is not giving one here that is a similar character study. I feel like I know who Jesse Eisenberg's Mark Zuckerberg is, even though that's quote-unquote Mark Zuckerberg, I feel like I saw a character portrait there. I saw a type of person really exposed or explored. And Steve Jobs, never mind whether or not I feel like I saw Steve Jobs, because as you said at the top, that's not something they could probably do in one film. But I don't even really know if I saw much of a character study at all besides this guy who had these corporate capabilities that I was already aware of as someone who followed you know, the Apple Corporation to a degree and had this estranged daughter. Beyond those qualities, it didn't reveal much more for me. Yeah. Revealing, though, is just not what I'm after. And I think revealing is precisely when biopics get in trouble. And so we could really well, parse it just how much. Way. Yeah, no. I mean, it'll tell you what you should be thinking. About. I know. And those are the issues I do have with the film in certain instances. But I think for the most part, this film tries to avoid that and it ultimately can't help itself. And I do have a problem with those scenes. I also just felt like for a good about 20 minutes of this movie, and I'd have to go back and watch it again and really try to pinpoint it visually. There is a part. It's in the second segment where, for whatever reason, it truly does start to feel like a commercial. 
It feels like an extended commercial. It becomes in the way characters are more static and characters are posing more. And we're watching – it's during the whole next Mm -hmm. launch. And we're seeing these shots. It keeps coming back to Fassbender just staring at a screen. And even when he's not doing that, even when he's talking with people, it becomes much more about these, again, static sort of moments. And it feels like a bunch of shots strung together with a pretty – heavy score underneath that is there to make us feel a certain way to provoke some kind of visceral reaction and it felt like too much it felt to me like it was too contrived that really did stand out to me compared to some of the other sequences certainly the first sequence in the film the 1984 launch which i do think is the movie's best sequence yeah i'd agree with that there's something else that i can't get into because i don't understand it but i appreciate about the film in terms of it feels to me as if sorkin and Boyle want to say something about a public life. And there are discussions about privacy and how certain information is dispensed and who says it. And the fact that there are so many instances in this film, Josh, where Jobs is having confrontations that sometimes they're behind closed doors, but very often they go outside those doors and there are just people looming Always. In the and third sequence in particular. In the third sequence in particular. So I, I don't know if there's a little bit of commentary there, but in this way that they are kind of surrogates for us as audience members and the way that it adds this layer of recognition to the fact that we only know Steve Jobs as a persona. We only know him as a public figure. So, again, there seems to be something there that the filmmakers are playing with. We'll see if some listeners have any thoughts on those aspects or any other aspects of Steve Jobs it is out now, again, in limited release, coming out in wide release next weekend. If you see the movie and agree or disagree with our takes, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Well, speaking of accents, we've already conquered German in Massacre Theater. Adam, do you think we can handle French? No. <laughs> we'll find out when we come back to play everyone's favorite acting game. Stay with us. You get it? No is French for no. Brilliant. I had a sugar-coated childhood. The stars were in my suit. Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Greetings, Filmspotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Matt Singer from Filmspotting Streaming Video Unit, extending you a personal invitation to check out our latest episode, where Allison Wilmore and I discuss Iris, one of the final films from Albert Mazel's a legendary documentarian who passed away earlier this year at the age of 88. Iris is about fashion icon and self-described geriatric starlet, Iris Apfel. So in her honor, we're going to talk about fashion on screen on the new SVU. 
And just for the occasion, Matt and I are both wearing enormous black-rimmed glasses. To listen to the show, check us out in iTunes or visit our website, filmspottingsvu.com. She knows who I am and she wants me to leave. Nonsense, my dear. You're not going anywhere. You had a bad dream. You were sleepwalking. No. I'm afraid I shall go mad if I stay. My darling, you're imagining things. Tomorrow, why don't we go out uh, to the post office? I think some fresh air would do you good. Nothing like a trip to the post office to clear up any suspicions that you're living in a haunted house. This is Film Spotting, a clip there from the film Josh and guest host Michael Phillips will review on next week's show, Crimson Peak, the new one from Guillermo del Toro. It stars Mia Vasakovska, Tom Hiddleston, and Jessica Chastain. There's also a chance, Josh, that you and Michael will spend a few minutes on Steven Spielberg's new one, Bridge of Spies. We hope to. You know Michael will have seen it. I'll try to catch up with him. There you go. It's the Cold War thriller with Tom Hanks. Both films open in wide release this weekend. The current film spotting poll question is inspired by the new Spielberg film. We asked you to name your favorite Cold War movie, and I'm not sure I've ever been more proud and at the same time more deeply, deeply disappointed in our listeners winning the poll by a shockingly wide margin. Josh? I'll let you read this brief note from listener Brett Matsky in Trumbull, Connecticut. We just got this today. Is Rocky Four really going to be anointed the best Cold War movie ever? Sigh. A couple other titles we gave you. The Manchurian Candidate, The Hunt for Red October. I mean, I love Rocky Four, but people, what are you doing? This is what happens when you invite Rocky Four to the party, Adam. <laughs> I love it. I actually genuinely love it. Again, we made it clear. We stipulated from the beginning that it wasn't about the best, the most cinematic, the movie that deserves to be praised for eternity. It's, the sort we usually spend time on on the show. Exactly. It's your favorite. Which one's your favorite? And which one at the end of the day seems to sum up what some might say was the absurdity of the Cold War, at least in the 80s. It's a tough battle between Rocky IV and Red Dawn, which is also in the poll. Oh, yes, it's also in the poll. Come on. <laughs> you can vote now at filmspotting.net. You can try to undo this travesty. There is still time. We have another week for you to vote for a better film. And The Manchurian Candidate, the original Frankenheimer, and both The Hunt for Red October, I believe a John McTiernan joint, mm -hmm. both better films than Rocky IV, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they should win this poll. If you leave a comment, we do hope you will let us know where you're listening from. It is time now for Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance at winning a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Your name is? Oh, uh, Jack Gordon. Mr. Gordon. Good. Um, well, Frederica used to work for Mrs. Lippman. Did you know her? No, uh-uh. Oh, wait. Was she a great big fat person? Yeah, she was a big girl, sir. Yeah, I, I miss... No, I, I read about her in the newspaper. Um... Mrs. Lippman had a son, though. Maybe he could help you. I got, I got his card in here someplace. Do you want to come in while I look for it? May I? Yes. Sir. Thank you. Are you close to catching somebody, you think? Yes. We may be. Did you take over this place after Mrs. Lippman died? Is that right? Yeah, I bought this house uh, two years ago. Did she leave any records, any business records, tax forms, list of employees? Well, nothing like that at all. Say, has the FBI learned something? The police around here don't seem to have the first clue. 
That's Ted Levine as Jamie Gum, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill, a.k.a. Sling Blade, and Jodie Foster as Clary Starling in Silence of the Lambs, written by Ted Talley and directed by Jonathan Demme, based on the novel by Thomas Harris. That massacre was part of a show we did a couple weeks back, episode 557, along with the review of Sicario and our top five Breaking Up the Boys Club movies. When we announced this top five on Twitter, listener at juvie underscore cinephile tweeted a great screenshot from Silence of the Lambs of Foster in an elevator, presumably at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, dwarfed by a half dozen dudes in matching red shirts. So that tie-in was there. And knowing our listeners, of course, there were a couple others we never intended or imagined. We will get to some of that feedback in a moment. But why not, for old time's sake, Josh, let's hear a little bit of our massacre. Your name is? Oh, uh, Jack Gordon. Mr. Gordon, good. Uh, well, Frederica used to work for Mrs. Lippman. Did you know her? No. Uh Uh-uh. I like this trend of... Comparing the two to see just how dead on we are. (laughs) Yeah, dead on. Exactly. We got this email from Lisa N. in Waltham, Massachusetts. So when Adam finally gets the man's role in Massacre Theater, it's for a man who is in the midst of fashioning himself a suit of lady's skin so that he can feel more feminine. Oh, Adam. Well, you certainly couldn't hold your own against Ted Levine or Jay Muse for that matter, but good job nonetheless. Hey, you got to start somewhere. Matt Coutts in Santa Monica, California said, I trust you left Silence of the Lambs off the Boys Club list so that it could be on Massacre Theater. That movie belongs at the top of any list about women breaking into the Boys Club. Clarice is constantly assaulted by men in subtle, Crawford's admonishment that she doesn't have to feel anything, and unsubtle ways, Mig's gift to her, all to show how vulnerable all women are in society. I would argue that that's what the movie is really about, and all the serial killer stuff is just window dressing. Mm. Will Collins says, The only obvious tie-in is that both Silence and Sicario are films about female agents on the hunt for a criminal. Both directors also have surnames, which are awkward to pronounce when you first encounter them. And that's all I got. Both performances were solid this week, right until Josh's breathy reading of the last line, No. No, I didn't. It was so weak, it wouldn't blow out a candle. Always love how he goes for it in each Massacre Theater. A couple listeners, actually more than a couple listeners, wrote in suggesting that there was a tie-in between the directors, our beloved Denis Villeneuve, exactly, and Jonathan Demme, that there was something in common where their names get mispronounced. And I saw so many of them, Josh, that it made me think... Okay, how have I been mispronouncing Jonathan Demme for all these years? I think you would have heard about it. Dave Anna in Charlotte, North Carolina had four connections. One, movie directors with strangely French-sounding last names, Demi and Villeneuve, there you go. But in fact, neither is from France. Two, both involve the FBI. Three, both female agents are working in a man's world against intense evil. And for a bunch of reviews, compare Emily Blunt's performance to Jodie Foster's, which is a very strong compliment. Ed Savoy, Harrisonburg, Virginia, says, At first I thought for certain this was Men in Black, given Adam's uncanny channeling of Vincent D'Onofrio's alien-possessed Edgar from that <laughs> film. So see, it wasn't Sling Blade at all. <laughs> However, after concluding that Will Smith would probably not be fetching an address, I figured this was Jonathan Demme's Silence of the Lambs. If only Sicario had been like Silence of the Lambs in another important way. Interesting. Zing. Here's another one I think they really got. Who you were going for here. This is from Brandon <laughs> Woolridge so in Long Beach, California. Glad to see Jamie Gum's voice has devolved into a mix of a young Forrest Gump meets Matthew McConaughey, the Lincoln driver. I'm glad <laughs> he's just McConaughey, but the Lincoln there. driver. Yeah, McConaughey. That is, that is a very 
unique form of McConaughey. So here's a good tie-in. Brett in Chicago says, Both Blunt's Kate and Foster's Clarice become sacrificial lambs to wolves, played by Del Toro and Hopkins, who, ironically, were both werewolves in 2010's The Wolfman. Both Del Toro and Hopkins' wolves start off as surrogate fathers to Kate and Clarice. Finally, both films have two of the greatest first-person night vision scenes in cinematic history. Well, I wouldn't go that far with Sicario, but they do have extended sequences near the end, as we touched on during our review, that deal with night vision. So there you go. Connections abound. One more note here from Dave Glanz. Guys, put the accents back in the basket. (laughs) We had to get it. We had to get that in there. Thank you, Dave, for being the guy who gave it to us. Josh, reach into the brimming, brimming, not film spotting hat, the brimming film spotting basket this week. (laughs) It's a basket full of lotion and entries. It's very slippery. You may have trouble getting out the entries. Let me just read the name, But go ahead and do it. Bianca Soto from Queens, New York. Congratulations, Bianca. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. We will all remember this moment for the rest of our lives. It was dramatic. It was visual. It was stupid. It was stupid, but it was also theater. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. We'll see what foreign accent we will butcher this week. We are certainly going to put the massacre in Massacre Theater, or at least Josh is. But then again, maybe not. Maybe you've been practicing. Maybe you've got it down. Maybe you took this language in high school and it's going to all come flooding back to you. Maybe I had some practice this summer. (laughs) Maybe. Oh, you're giving. Well, it's not a hint really so much because I think people hopefully will be able to identify (laughs) what language you're attempting. It's actually not even the challenge, is it? No, it's not really a hint either (laughs) to this scene. Like always or like usual, it does tie into a topic of discussion on this week's show. Josh, you are starting it out. So I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. You don't know my name, do you? Is it Stanford? I should just kick your ass. How do you go to a party and you meet some... Amelia Ritter. But you prefer Amy. You're from Orinda, your father's in commercial real estate, and your mother's 10 years sober. What's my major? Trombone? Really? I remember something about a trombone. To fait l'amour la zifelible l'amour de côte. French. Your major's French. And yours? Mine? I don't have one. You haven't declared? I don't go to school. And... and? Scene. scene. One take. That was one take. That was one take. I think you it got w- the French more than I got his charisma down. That's probably fair. Sadly. Very sadly. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You've got two weeks. Your deadline is Monday, October 26th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries, and we'll announce it on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. It's top five time, or at least preamble to the top five time this week. Back-to-back movies, a top five inspired, as we mentioned earlier, by our recent Ridley Scott deathmatch, Alien vs. Blade Runner. You can only pick one, and those movies were made back-to-back in 1979 and 1982. In that clip, you heard Sigourney Weaver's Ripley with Veronica Cartwright's Lambert. His next project, after Blade Runner, of course, his iconic 1984 ad for the Apple Macintosh, because everything, it seems, does lead back to Steve Jobs. It gets a lot of screen time it in does. the movie. It really does. Danny Boyle, the director of Steve Jobs, a fine one, but not Josh one who 
it looks like is going to make our back-to-back movies list. Did you consider Alien and Blade Runner for your list? Yeah, and I, I just assumed that I was going to set it aside and I needed to set it aside once I started looking at possible titles. Mm-hmm. Here's the irony about this top five. When Sam Van Hogan, one of our producers, suggested it, great idea, loved it, but my thought was, that's going to be hard. Are there enough examples right. for the two of us? Well, the opposite turned out to be true. It was a treasure trove of possibilities. So I really needed to find excuses to set certain ones aside. So I did that with Alien and Blade Runner. We talked about it quite a bit. Make it a memorialist. Here's another memorialist. Mine is going to be, I'm just calling this my mid-century master's memorialist because that allows me to set aside people like Satyajit Ray, Robert Brisson, Akira Kurosawa, Igmar Bergman, and Alfred Hitchcock, all hugely influential, masterful filmmakers working around the same time. And the thing about their filmographies is maybe not always two or three in a row, mm-hmm. but you know, six, seven films that people would claim as masterpieces. So probably isn't fair to set those aside. That is probably my real list, those filmmakers there, but I did it anyway so that I could get to some other picks. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot like you're Mr. IMDb, but you mentioned Satyajit Ray, and I kind of forgot about Ray, though I think maybe a couple weeks ago when we first kicked this topic around, I did consider him, and I wonder if there are some movies in between some of those masterpieces we watched during our Ray Marathon that maybe because we haven't seen them or maybe because they're lesser Ray then made him ineligible. I know there was at least one film between the first Apu film and the second. Well, I believe between the second and the third. Okay, so we have this. Father Panchali and Aparajito were to get right in a row. Okay. So right there. He's on the list. But then following Aparajito was The Music Room, which mm-hmm. we both liked quite a bit. Then there's one that we didn't see, Paris Pathar. But after that comes The World of Apu. So, mm-hmm. I mean, consider that run. And the other filmmakers I mentioned have similar ones. Well, speaking of runs, and this will get us into one category of exclusion I use, and I think you did as well. So you had even more help in refining your list. But of course, we have the Pantheon here mm-hmm. for these reasons, movies that we have set aside because if we didn't set them aside... We love them so much, and they're, for the most part, commonly hailed as great films that they would probably make every other top five list, if not every single top five list, and that would be really boring. So along those lines, as we're talking about runs, Daniel in Bogota, Colombia, wrote in and said, I'm 20 years old, I'm a recent listener to the podcast, and this is the first time I've written. When you said back-to-backs, I instantly thought about a director that had one of the greatest decades in movie history in the 1970s, Francis Ford Coppola. The Godfather, followed by The Conversation, followed by The Godfather Part Two. Those movies came out the same year, actually, Godfather Two and Conversation, both nominated for Best Picture in 74, and then Apocalypse Now. Every one of those films is a masterpiece, a film every movie geek should see. So whether you pick the first two, the ones in the middle, or the last pair, there really is no bad choice. Daniel also threw out Danny Boyle, actually. He said because it does tie into the Steve Jobs review, but also because Shallow Grave and Trainspotting were the one two-punch the world needed to meet Boyle. Those were the first two movies of his career, and they let everyone know that a great filmmaker had arrived. He gave us one more, Josh, Christopher Nolan. Yeah. He's had a great career, and the thing is that almost all of his films would make a great back-to-back movie session. Following and Memento together would get you a glimpse at how he got his voice at an independent level and how he developed as a filmmaker. Insomnia and Batman Begins would show you how he snuck into the big league and gave Hollywood a first taste of his talents. And The Prestige and The Dark Knight would display how well he can jump between an original story and an adaptation that has an original, distinctive voice behind it. See, in my Nolan trifecta would be The Prestige, The Dark Knight, 
And then Inception. Yeah. I mean, those three in a row mm. for me. So Nolan is an honorable mention Really good. Me. Taylor in Evanston also wrote in and said, Interestingly enough, while Alien and Blade Runner are the impetus for this idea, Ridley Scott has no other viable candidates in my mind. Aside from the Alien Blade Runner 1-2 punch, every one of his movies I like has a total clunker on either chronological side of it. I have the same issue with Woody Allen. And that's interesting that Taylor would say that because, of course, me being a huge Woody Allen guy, but recognizing that he has a fair number of clunkers in his filmography and he makes so many films, you might expect that. There really weren't any obvious Woody Allen pairings for Hmm. this list. Not even I could find any obvious Woody Allen pairings because even something like Annie Hall in Manhattan, two of my, you know, top 50 films of all time, two of my top two or three Woody Allen films, they had interiors in between them. And I do really like interiors, his ode to Ingmar Bergman, but it doesn't match up quite to Annie Hall and Manhattan. Taylor goes on, while I definitely dug The Martian, the fact that I dug it so much is almost infuriating as it highlights just how inconsistent Scott has been over the years. And he's right. Scott is a filmmaker. Exodus was just last year, right? Exactly. Right. But I do have one more Ridley Scott pairing that I didn't consider for this list, but it turns out he's made two pretty good films back to back at one point in his career. And those two films were Black Hawk Down, followed by Matchstick Men. Matchstick Men. Hmm. So that's my that's my trump card to Taylor. Categories, no, no, but two good films. Two, I'd say, really good films. Actually, not great, not masterpieces, but two good films. But speaking of great films and masterpieces, let's get into a little bit more detail about the Pantheon because I really did consider whether or not one of the two movies in these back-to-back pairings being in the Pantheon should make it ineligible, and ultimately, I came down on that side. In some cases. Both movies are in the Pantheon. So we heard from Daniel about Coppola. The Godfather is there. The Conversation isn't, but a wonderful film. The Godfather Part Two, paired with Apocalypse Now, both those movies in the Pantheon. Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, both are there. Sidney Lumet, Dog Day Afternoon, and Network. Network not in the Pantheon, but as I said on a recent show, it probably should be. And then you go to a guy like Kubrick. He's got Strangelove, 2001, which is in the Pantheon. And then after that, A Clockwork Orange all need to be considered. How about Richard Linklater? Dazed and Confused, followed by Before Sunrise, which is in the Pantheon, and Dazed Confused probably should be. Billy Wilder, my guy. This was a tough one. Sunset Boulevard, followed by his most underrated film and one of my top five Wilder films, Ace in the Hole. And then he followed that with Stalag 17. So even though Ace in the Hole was a bust at the time, I think everyone has come around to recognizing just how good a film that is, starring Kirk Douglas. A couple more, I'll mention The Coen Brothers. Fargo and the big Lebowski. Fargo should be in the Pantheon. Lebowski is. And how about Spielberg and Jaws? He followed Jaws with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So some of the great titles and great filmmakers who we did exclude for this list. A lot of those were honorable mentions for me as well, but I could have gone with Spielberg. I mean, think about E.T. and Raiders. Wow, did those movies follow each other? Yes, they did. And, you know, Raiders is in the Pantheon, so that negated those titles for me. But Mm. yeah, man, Spielberg's done it twice. One other pairing I did exclude for this list, because at some point, both these movies, well, I don't know, I may have to fight with you a little bit on one of them, because you don't love it quite as much as I do. But two movies that certainly have gotten plenty of love for me in the past few years that they have come out. Paul Thomas Anderson, There Will Be Blood, following it with The Master. Not in the Pantheon, but in my penalty box for this director's back-to-back list. See, I could have squeezed PTA on here because for me, the back-to-back from Paul Thomas Anderson is Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood. Well, I can see that. And some people would go with Boogie Nights followed by Magnolia. So there are a lot of options. And I loved Inherent Vice as well. So I think he's got a good trifecta there with his last three films one last note hitchcock was he one of the mid-century masters you kicked out so 
there's a fair amount of Hitchcock I haven't seen. So weighing in is pretty silly. That said, we had a few people write in pointing out that this trifecta probably won't ever be top. So you can pick whichever pairing you want. Vertigo, followed by North by Northwest, followed by Psycho. Yeah, that's the group. That's the group. And I would agree with those people if I love North by Northwest as much as most of the world does. Like, I don't put that film on the same level as Vertigo and Psycho. If it was no, those two films I. next to each other, then slam dunk, this would be the Vertigo and Psycho memorial list. But North by Northwest in between, as good a film as it is, and it is a quality film, it's just not up to snuff with those other two. And Vertigo is in the pantheon. Okay. There you go. Enough about what didn't make our list. Let's get to what did. The film spotting top five is next. Stay with us. Scratch a ticket with a leg of a cricket and I got triple Jesus. Cashed it in for Siamese twin at the family firing range. I went to bed and woke up beside another man said nobody. Folks, a quick interruption as we do want to get to a couple thank yous, recognize a few of our donors this week, and also mention our featured artist, El Vi, a collaboration between the Nationals, Matt Berninger and Brent Knopf. Their album, Return to the Moon, comes out October 30th, and an accompanying tour begins in Portland, Oregon on November 2nd. The Thursday, November 19th show here in Chicago at Metro is sold out. More information at lvi.co. Also wanted to give a little plug to a festival coming up. Longtime listener of the show, Reverend Robert Lewis in Damascus, Maryland, wanted to mention the Greater Washington, D.C. Immigration Film Festival. It takes place October 22nd through 25th at various locations around the D.C. metro area. More information is at immigrationfilmfest.org. We'll link to that in our show notes. We know we have a lot of listeners in the D.C. area, including Alexandria, which we consider film spotting east. Or maybe that's Arlington. I always mix up my A suburbs in Virginia. We also got a note from listener Philip Swift, who is a filmmaker and is showing a movie that's premiering at the Logan Theater here in Chicago on October 29th at 7 p.m. There's a special screening of the new documentary, The Dark Side of Disney, followed by a rough cut screening of the short documentary, Keep Moving Forward. He's going to offer two free tickets to film spotting listeners who want to attend. So if you do, just send us a note with your name and mention Disney in the subject line, and we will throw you into the hat for consideration to attend that movie. The Dark Side of Disney, not a takedown from what I can tell of Disney, Josh, but more about people who are huge Disney fans and some of the obsessive turns and twists it takes them on. I know people like that. It can get pretty dark. I had a feeling you did. Again, more information about that will be in our show notes as well. Let's get to some of our donors this week. We want to thank Paul in Windsor, Ontario, Lucas Bus in Mortsel, Belgium as well, who wrote us, Josh, and said that 
He has no idea if we have any knowledge of Belgian cinema. The answer is we do not, though the Dardens are Belgian, are they not? I believe so. I'm pretty sure they are, so I'm that a little bit familiar. Count. And he wanted to know what Belgian movies do we know or like? Does Belgian cinema stand for something to you other than the Dardens? No. Yeah, I don't I don't think my nineteen ninety nine newspaper review of a dog of Flanders is going to count. No. I can't even remember if I liked it or not. <laughs> <laughs> LarsonOnFilm.com if you want to know the answer to that burning question. Lucas also sent us his website. He is a writer, director, actor, filmmaker, and he graduated from film school, made a short film called Everything for the Movies. That's the English version. It was selected for the 33rd Chicago Underground Film Festival. So we will link to more information about Lucas if you're curious to check out his work. Finally, Josh, a donation from Mark in Grand Ledge, Michigan. This amount is paltry when compared to the hundreds of hours of enjoyable listening, but it's all my meager budget allows. I'll try to make the next one sooner than I did this one. We'll take it, Mark. We appreciate every cent we get, and actually we have a little bit more to report. A new $5 a month donation comes to us from William in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Thank you, William. Thank you to all of our listeners, whether a one-time donor, a $5 a month, $2 a month, whatever it is, we do appreciate every cent that we get. It goes a long way to keeping us doing what we're doing. Hi, this is Danny Boyle, director of Sunshine and Train Spotting, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Welcome back to Film Spotting with your pair of hosts, Adam and Josh. This week we're highlighting some of our favorite back to back movie pairs. So, pairs from a director, and we do need to specify that it's a director because, as our wonderful co producer Sam Van Hogren noted today, at some point we could do actor and actress. That would be great. Pairings. And I think that will be a fun top five to get to. But these are directors who made two films in a row that were both pretty special. And now that we have kicked out all the movies that are already in the film spotting pantheon and exempted those and kicked out any others that are in the penalty box or just because of age, Josh, you monster, you kicked out some of these mid-century <laughs> that was masters. my reason. <laughs> We are now ready to share our top five. And I'm curious, did you have any other criteria? Because I'll give you one for me. It wasn't that hard once I realized that I was looking for pairings where just gut instinct, when I first saw them on a website or I saw it on Twitter, someone suggested it or it just popped into my head, the films instantly spoke to me as movies that if someone said, what are your top 50, what are your top 100 films of all time? They would at least be in that conversation. I'd have to set them aside and refine it later. And who knows, maybe they'd be on the outside looking in, but they would at least be in that first batch, that top tier of movies that I revere that much. So some of these filmmakers have made at least two films back to back that qualify. Yeah, I think that applies to my list as well. I'm still, despite all those disqualifications, I'm still left with some masters here, but also some more idiosyncratic personal choices. And I think what unites them more when I looked back on it than when I was forming it is that these are all one-two punches that had a huge cumulative impact for the filmmaker's career, maybe more so in some cases, but also in some cases an impact on film history itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I'm with you. All right, number five. Elaine Rene with Hiroshima Monomar and Last Year at Marion Bad. Oh, wow. Now, Rene is one of the main figures in the French New Wave, but the revolution that took place in these two key films to me feels very different, at least formally, from what took place in the films of Truffaut or Godard or someone like Agnes Varda. 
first with Hiroshima Mon Amour, that's 1959, and then with 1961's Last Year at Marion Bad, he reconstructed film form in a way that was more rigorous than those other directors, certainly less playful, and I, I think more abstract as well, though Godard would head in that direction, absolutely, as his career went on. Hiroshima is still somewhat of a traditional narrative. It centers on a French actress who has a two-day affair with an architect while on location in Japan. But the way it visually integrates abstract thought and history and memory was groundbreaking. It also has an astonishing Emmanuel Riva in the lead, who was so good just a few years ago in Michael Haneke's Amour. Now, last year at Marion Bad, that's Renee's follow-up, that almost completely left traditional cinema behind. It's full of fractured imagery built around a man and a woman wandering this lavish hotel where they may or may not have met a year earlier. I just became familiar with these two films recently, Marion Bad last year, I think it was, and then Hiroshima last week in consideration for this list. Both of them completely mesmerized me. I'm, I'm sure there are predecessors to a degree in the decades before them, and certainly there are followers. I was thinking maybe a contemporary is someone like Shane Carruth with Upstream Color, yeah. just in the use of film form. But these two at least stand out to me as these back-to-back masterworks, especially during this critical time in film history. I love Hiroshima Monomore. I love the Marguerite Dura story it's based on as well. It's come up on a few top five lists over the years, actually, though I don't think any since you've been a part of the show, Josh. I couldn't consider that pairing, though, because I haven't seen Marion Bad. It's one of my big blind spots. But as you were mentioning these movies, I did have to go to IMDb. And it turns out I probably could have considered Rene because he made Hiroshima Monomore, as you said, 1959. In 55, he made his great Holocaust documentary, Night and Fog. Right. There are two movies in between that are considered shorts, though. And actually, even Night and Fog is listed as a documentary short, but it's about 60 minutes, and I don't consider it a short at all. So I definitely could have considered Rene for those two films. My number five is a pairing from a pair of filmmakers, The Maisels, Salesman and Gimme Shelter, two documentaries. And as we're talking about some trifectas these filmmakers have— Gimme Shelter was followed by Grey Gardens, which for some people is maybe the best film of the bunch. For me, actually, Salesman is my favorite of the three. My number three pick is going to get into two movies that one listener described as two significant cultural touchstones from a certain decade. That decade was the 70s. Here with Salesman and Gimme Shelter, I'm giving you two significant cultural touchstones transitioning into the 70s out of the 60s. Salesman in 1968 and Gimme Shelter coming out in 70. Both came up a little while back during our top five list, Characters on the Fringe. It coincided with Albert Maisel's passing. And so I got to mention Salesman and Great Gardens a little bit, and those certainly fit into that scheme of fringe characters. I think you could probably argue that even the non-Rolling Stone members of the cast aside from Gimme Shelter, you could probably make a case for some of the people in the crowd at Altamont as also fitting in on the fringe, and that's what Gimme Shelter chronicles, is that concert, that ill-fated concert that the Stones put on where a member of the crowd was killed on stage, and the cameras, the Maisel's cameras, capture that. Salesman was their first feature, and one of the remarkable things about it is, up to that point, filmmakers had been using these new cameras, the new lightweight technology or lighter weight technology, to capture dramatic events. And that's what they were largely focused on was events. And here the Maisels come along and they say, we're just going to follow some salesmen around as they travel the country selling Bibles. There's no crisis. There's no deadline. There's no real urgency. We are just going to capture life. And 
they favored personality over events. And it's ultimately a tragic story, though, not in the life and death sense, more in the American dream sense of tragic, watching a certain misfit character in particular, one of the salesmen, flail and fail. Well, everything in this life is a sacrifice. Oh, that's for sure. right? How about six months from now? Who knows what six months is going to bring? Well, nobody knows what the next day is going to come. You know, there's... That's why I don't... uh, uh, I don't want to take the chance on committing myself. Well, it wouldn't be too much of a chance. It involves forty nine ninety five for the Bible, Mrs. O'Connor. And that's not much. You know what I mean? A carton of cigarettes a week cost you $3. Does Dad have a birthday coming up? came out in 68, but it was shot in 66, edited in 67. There's a real sense of watching it of a certain innocence and quaintness. You know, it's almost 1950s America, pre-radical, Bible salesman, again, going door to door. You really can't get more traditional sort of homespun mainstream America than that. And then they follow that coming out of that time with a chronicle of the event that many credit with being the mark of the end of the free love era and the harbinger of the disillusionment of the 1970s that would come. I'll just briefly mention Richard Brody in The New Yorker wrote a great article coinciding with Maisel's passing, called What Died at Altamont. And Josh, with you going on a little bit of a Frederick Wiseman kick lately, you'll appreciate this. He said, it's commonplace to consider the documentary filmmaker Frederick Wiseman, his films to be centered on the lives of institutions and those of the Maisels to be centered on the lives of people. But Gimme Shelter does both, though it's replete with some exhilarating concert footage, notably of the Stones performing on the concert tour that led up to the Altamont disaster. Its central subject is how the Altamont concert came into being. Gimme Shelter is a film about a concert that is only incidental a concert film, yet the Maisel's vision of the unfolding events is distinctive and for that matter historic by virtue of their distinctive directorial procedure. So I agree with everything Brody said, said it much more eloquently than I could, but there's a nice comparison and contrast with Salesman, which as I said, isn't so much about an event and ostensibly the Altamont concert is an event, but there are the similarities in terms of it being about process, in terms of it being about people and personalities more so than the event and also The institution at the core, I think, of a movie like Salesman is really capitalism and the American dream. So their ability to walk both those lines is what made them such special filmmakers. Well, I still need to go on my Maisel's kick. Grey Gardens is the only film of theirs I've seen so far. My number four is Jane Campion with An Angel at My Table and then The Piano. The Piano was my number one movie of 1993. It is one of the formative film-going experiences I had. I remember it made such an impact on me when it did first come out that I just wanted to see everything Jane Campion had made, and I was just starting to view filmmakers in that way. So that did lead me to her previous film, An Angel at My Table, and this is a three-hour biopic about New Zealand writer Janet Frame, who spent years in a hospital after being mistakenly diagnosed with a mental illness. So that is this hugely expansive achievement. As a matter of fact, it was originally meant as a television miniseries. But what was remarkable about it was how it's just as attuned to the same sort of psychological tremors that the piano tapped into. Now, An Angel at My Table garnered Campion international attention. And then when the piano came out, that's the one that just really made her reputation after winning awards at Cannes and the Oscars. And with that ushered in this truly fresh voice into the movie conversation at the time for those who lost track of campion she's i think she's done good stuff since but very few people feel she's hit that zenith Hmm. again some of the things you might want to check out though if you have lost track of her 
And this is recent, Top of the Lake. It's the New Zealand police procedural series that she directed that stars Elizabeth Moss. It's it's very rough in terms of some of the subject matter, but it does as well explore these same unsettling undercurrents in, in the ways that only Campion can. And that's actually streaming on Netflix right now, so you can catch up with it there. Well, as you know, I only just finally saw The Piano fairly recently and did not have a formative experience. No. I wish I could have watched it at that time, maybe when I was about 17 years old when maybe it came out. Maybe that's it. And I'm not suggesting that you were yeah, you... impressionable, Josh, but I'm saying maybe I could have been more impressionable at that time, and that would have been a good thing. You implied I was a little immature, yeah. liking the piano. <laughs> I don't know if that's I'm glad, fair. I'm glad you can read the subtext, Josh. My number four, here's a shocker, after all this discussion, I am including Ridley Scott, Alien, and Blade Runner. Yeah, fair enough. The Deathmatch poll feedback, I think, last week made my case for me, hopefully. But I did pick out a couple more responses because these listeners are so passionate about these films. And I am too. But as I admitted on the show, I haven't seen either of them in so long that I can't wait to revisit them. And I do think we need to have that kind of Deathmatch show where we just watch both movies and really get into them a little bit and have a good conversation. But I thought I would pick out two bits of feedback that we didn't include in the poll feedback. One of the listeners who wrote in, Benjamin Miner, we did share a little bit of his thoughts. He said that if Blade Runner somehow loses this death match, I'm going to cry. Fortunately for Benjamin, he didn't have to weep in front of anyone because Blade Runner did edge out alien but he said this blade runner is so completely immersive and is so visually dazzling the power of its visual presentation alone makes it a perennial classic but what it has to offer runs so much deeper than that the now hackneyed notion of artificial intelligence struggling with its own identity is handled here with such delicacy i actually found myself getting emotional in the scene where rachel is confronted by deckard about the true nature of her implanted memories the script has real power in the things that it does not spell out for the audience the line between heroes and villains is so blurry as to be almost non-existent but the element of the script is never played cheaply its vision of a dystopian future earth is also handled with real subtlety he does knock here benjamin a certain unicorn sequence but he says blade runner is an enduring masterstroke certainly in my personal sacred cow slash pantheon putting it to a death match against the ultimately cheap scare show that is alien well i very nearly take that as a personal insult going back to my initial viewing of blade runner back in college I remember responding to all of those things, just like Benjamin did, and seeing it as much more of an interesting philosophical treatise, like a lot of good sci-fi, like the best sci-fi, in addition to the detective story aspect and the visual appeal. But to balance that, Jeremy Coe in Seattle wrote in and said, This week's Deathmatch is truly one of your most diabolical yet. Both of these movies rank among my all-time favorites. For the longest time, I was going to go with Blade Runner, because while Alien may be the most visceral filmmaking experience I've ever had, every revisit of Blade Runner has left me with many more questions for me to dwell on later. But at the last minute, I had to choose Alien because I realized that if it were gone, I'd be depriving my one-year-old daughter of a potential hero in Ripley, who might just be the most badass woman in the history of cinema. The movies are filled to the brim with complicated nuance and heroic male figures, and is often embarrassingly bereft of female characters given similar depth and dignity. And I'll be damned if I let one of the most iconic female characters in movie history go quietly into the night. So sadly, to the fire you must go, Rick Deckard, long live Ripley. He does end, though, with... You monsters. We'll take that. Now, I know what your response is already because you said it last week on the show, which is you can still have Ripley and she's still a badass, if not a bigger badass in Aliens. Show the kid Aliens. Yeah. So Alien can go and you still got Aliens to show her. But actually, I think that speaks even more to why Alien needs to be preserved because you could argue that one of the 
true beauties of Alien is the fact that we don't get that female hero who does step into the quote-unquote badass type of role. Right. At the same time, even though we touched on this as being one of the things we like about Aliens a lot, it just came up on a top five, the maternal nature of it, well, Cameron does feel the need to turn the female hero into a mother figure, and Alien never goes down that path. She simply is the character who's most in control and the smartest and the most conscientious who also happens to be a woman. And so there's something to say. There's a difference between the Ripley we get in Aliens and the Ripley in Alien that I do think make them distinct. All that said... I love both the films, or at least I think I love both the films, and that's why they're my number four. Do you feel better now after being forced to choose in the Deathmatch poll? You found a way to honor both. There you go. Yeah. That's what I was trying to do. I know that was your true motivation. Yep. At number three, I've got one of the masters that I didn't want to exclude. It's Charlie Chaplin for City Lights and Modern Times. I'm I'm no Chaplin expert, but from the shorts I've yep. seen and some of the films I've seen, I'd describe these back-to-back efforts as the pinnacle of his career. Uh, this is just when he'd come to master the feature film length, though I think some might say that happened with The Gold Rush, uh, one film earlier. But it was also before he would begin to struggle with the sound era and his own personal disillusionment. City Lights, just delightful. I mean, romantic and silly. It's this playful poking of class consciousness. Modern Times, though, this is one of the all-time greats. When we did our Top Ten of All Time show, I had Modern Times on my list. Chaplin's Little Tramp here is a factory worker who's he's blown about by the whims of efficiency. And there are great gags about feeding machines and cranks and levers and, and really our, our inability to keep up with our own ambitions. And, and I think this ties into Steve Jobs, really, with each new amazing technology that humanity invents, modern times is only going to seem smarter and funnier when we look back at it. So the best of Chaplin for my money came with these two films right in a row. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And I do know that earlier today when I was thinking about my list, I fully intended to find a spot in my top five for City Lights and Modern Times. And then when I sat down, I forgot about them somehow. So I don't know if in the end they still would have cracked my top five once I came up with these five choices or these 10 choices, but would have been in the running. Definitely an honorable mention for me. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're sharing our top five back-to-back movies. These are movies made consecutively by the same director that we think are both pretty spectacular. And I'm sharing my number three pick. The director is a filmmaker I got to interview a few years ago here in Chicago at a Chicago Public Library event. And that was an event unto itself, just watching him stalk the stage and take my little provocations and go off on 15-minute tangents. He is William Friedkin. The two films are The French Connection and The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Yeah, which you know I love and you don't appreciate nearly enough. We did a Sacred Cow review of that one around Halloween. Top five, a few huh? years ago. Oh, top five. Absolutely. I love both films. I especially love The Exorcist. And I was reminded of this Friedkin double feature from Jim Polini, longtime listener in Bethpage, New York, who said Friedkin gives us two significant cultural touchstones and consecutive movie releases during the 70s. In the offing, he also manages to break new cinematic ground in both films. The French Connection established the grammar for filming and editing a gripping car chase. The Exorcist had breakthroughs in makeup effects, sound design, and general creepiness that established the standards for films of that era. So, I revisited some of these movies prepping for that interview. I thought that The Exorcist was my favorite William Friedkin film, and it still was after I revisited the movies. I just think it's a perfectly constructed horror movie combining all these different storylines and what we primarily disagreed on. You thought it was going for shock value in a lot of scenes, and I think that the most shocking scenes are shocking 
precisely because he's so patient in his approach to filmmaking and the fact that we really understand these characters and their relationships. He devotes so much attention to that, that that just amplifies everything else. It's also a film that would seem to be about trying to scare you or shock you or consider the devil and evil and how it can affect us and affect our daily lives. But for me, it really is fundamentally a movie about guilt. You then go to a film in the French connection coming from the iconic horror film for me, to the iconic police crime procedural. And like The Exorcist, it's not really what it's ostensibly about. It's not about crime or drugs or cops so much as it's about obsession. And that's really where when you get to the end of that film and you see where Popeye Doyle's character played by Gene Hackman has got himself to and the situation he's in, that's really the stunning part. Forget the car chase. The stunning part of The French Connection is that final scene. Actually, in my letterbox review, when I revisited The French Connection, I had to quote a scene from Christopher Nolan. We referenced him earlier and his movie, The Prestige, where we hear Nikola Tesla's character say, I can recognize an obsession. No good will come of it. That's the underlying truth of the movie The French Connection. So I'm with Jim. They are touchstones of the 70s and touchstones of cinema for me. Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. Since Halloween is right around the corner, I won't dampen your exorcist enthusiasm. But instead, I'll move right on to two better films that came out just one year later. Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles and mm. Young Frankenstein. Yeah. Same year. Uh, this, it's another comedian here for me. And even as I say the titles... They seem too lightweight for a list like this or to be this high Didn't even on we my review list. Blazing Saddles, we, though? But that's part of it. We just revisited Blazing yeah. Saddles and it held it, up. Oh, man, did Funny, it ever. smart. Young Frankenstein. Satire. That's been a lifelong favorite for me. And I've watched it repeatedly. And yeah, it was smart. It was funny. Funnier than I remembered Blazing Saddles. That was episode 479. We did that. Now, the weird thing here is that Brooks, otherwise, isn't really a favorite of mine. I mean, the producers. Is fine. His 1990s directing efforts, I've barely even bothered with. But for at least one year, and with these two films, right in 74, man, you couldn't do better than Mel Brooks. Be ready to attack Rock Ridge at noon tomorrow. Here's your badge. Badges? We don't need no stinking badges. Oh, no. <laughs> Qualifications. Stampeding cattle. That's not much of a crime. Through the Vatican? Kinky. Great picks. Great picks. Completely overlooked by me. My number two includes two films and a director who I don't think many of our listeners would overlook when putting together their own list. Sergio Leone, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, 1966, followed by Once Upon a Time in the West. And it took me 10 years, Josh. I mean, I saw these movies a few years ago now. One of them just a couple of years ago, actually, in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But listeners who started with us back in 2005, initially started listening to the podcast, would be so proud to know that 10 years later, I'd be sitting here praising these two films that at the time I hadn't seen. I was completely clueless about and top five list after top five list we would do and we would get chided for not including these great revisionist westerns, these spaghetti westerns from Leone. And 
every Leone film I've caught up with over the years, I haven't been disappointed with. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is a movie that's set during the Civil War, and you've got three men who are all searching for $200,000 in gold. So this is an adventure movie. This is a thrilling movie. Lots of guys looking very cool, doing cool things with guns. And yet for me, this is a movie where you've got people who, instead of philosophically considering their mortality and the seeming meaninglessness of life, what Leone does is he just has characters who really don't have any time to reflect, don't have any purpose for reflection, and instead they have already come to terms with the meaningless of it all. They've already faced death and faced the horrors of life so many times that they have harden themselves to it. And I also just can't get enough watching Clint Eastwood and his face in every Leone film and a lot of his Westerns, but especially the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then you go a couple years later to Once Upon a Time in the West, and you think about just how many filmmakers over the years have cribbed from Leone and this movie. And I'm not just thinking of Tarantino, but the faces, the rhythms of the editing, the landscape. I went back to a top five list we did, your predecessor, Maddie, here with me in 2011. We did our top five revisionist westerns, and somehow we left Once Upon a Time in the West off the list, and a listener wrote in Angus Sutherland and made a really compelling case for it. One of the things he said was, on top of all the different character portrayals and how nuanced they are, he said, all the characters are complex and they evolve throughout the film. Before this, in the Dollar series and the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Leone's characters are rather simple and static, and Once Upon a Time, almost everyone has an arch. And that movie was a challenging film. Takes Henry Fonda, this beloved icon of American cinema, and turns him into a really, really evil guy. So there's that. There's so much more. Just as pure filmmaking, though, it's hard to argue with those two Leone films. Yeah, I love The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Once Upon a Time in the West is one I do still have to see. At number one, I've got my most personal pick, and it's Wes Anderson with Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. Shocker. I know. Didn't see Wes Anderson coming. No big surprise. But <laughs> I can put Paul Thomas Anderson in my penalty box, but you can't find room for your Anderson. Well, here, here's why. This is the distinction. This is the back-to-back achievement I got to experience. Okay. All the others I saw decades, perhaps, later. And it's it's a completely different ballgame mm. when you ha- – here's what it was. So I saw Rushmore in 98. Really liked it, but it took another viewing for me. I didn't come out of there thinking you know, that my world had been changed as a moviegoer. I really liked it. That was about it. Then another viewing, and I started to soak it in and did come to absolutely adore it. So by the time – 2001's The Royal Tenenbaums was coming out. It's You've had this with Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm sure. It's an experience with a favorite director where you love their last film so much, you almost don't want them to make another mm-hmm. because you just can't imagine that they'll live up to it. But with Royal Tenenbaums, Anderson, he did. He absolutely delivered. Uh, not just for me either. This was uh, Oscar nominated for the screenplay. And that is also the movie that put Anderson in the realm of the American cinema elite that would send him off to where he is now. So Rushmore, it's still my favorite. And if pressed, I might even rank Fantastic Mr. Fox higher than Tenenbaums, but still, man, was it fun to have those two coming out back to back. Yeah, it's interesting. Looking at my honorable mentions, I have a couple that I experienced back to back, but none of my top five choices worked out that way. I was not alive back in 1957, the year both of my number one films came out. They are Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal, followed by Wild Strawberries. I won't say much because both of these films have been discussed on the show a lot in top fives as part of a Bergman marathon a few years back. And certainly 
Neither film needs me to speak on their behalf at this point, but they are two films very much about my favorite subject, mortality, and their essential viewing. Maybe the two films, I was thinking about this today, and this would be a fun top five list to put together, actually. Despite how learned and astute and smarter than us a good chunk of our listeners certainly are. There are a lot of neophytes out there. We get emails from a lot of people who are just getting in to cinema, and we are sometimes a gateway and very happy to be a gateway for those young listeners. And if someone came to me and said, okay, I'm hearing some of these names, these European masters, I'm a little daunted by it, going back into some of these black and white subtitled movies, I don't know where to start. I'd probably tell people to start with The Seventh Seal You'd and Wild Strawberries. Bergman first. Yeah, huh? I would go with Bergman. I wouldn't go with Persona Bergman. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. go with Cries and Whispers Bergman, but I'd go with the Bergman of The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries because they are certainly art house. They're not conventional Hollywood pictures, but I certainly think they're accessible and they are iconic, filled with lasting images. And I found a great article. It's IngmarBergman.se that has a whole piece about Bergman's legacy. And it asks the question, which of his films, which 10 of Bergman's films have been the most influential and why. Surprisingly, this is a movie I haven't seen. Surprising to me, Summer with Monica was actually number one. And the writer makes a very good case for it, referencing a lot of films that quote it that I haven't seen either. But number three was The Seventh Seal. And you think about that encounter with death, that first chess scene on the beach. You can look at David Lynch's Lost Highway and look at Robert Blake and how he's shot and portrayed. Terry Gilliam, John Borman, Paul Verhoeven, Brian De Palma, of course, Woody Allen over the years have all referenced directly or indirectly, in some instances, The Seventh Seal. And then number four was Wild Strawberries and his use of a nonlinear style, breaking up time and space and some of those classical Hollywood conventions, the nightmare scene. So great in Wild Strawberries, you see played out in the films of David Cronenberg and a filmmaker who came up last week with our guest, Stephen Cohn, Arnaud Desplechens. So the article is really interesting in terms of how it picks individual frames from some of these movies and shows how they harken back directly to Ingmar Bergman. I just think he's one of those guys that really did help invent or move forward the language of cinema, and he's still being referenced constantly by filmmakers today. Bergman, one of my mid-century masters for exactly those two films, so Mm. can't quibble with that pick. Those are our top five director, back-to-back movies. What about any other honorable mentions for you, Josh? Would you believe I still have some honorable mentions despite setting aside all that? I mean, this was a really rich topic. Miyazaki, one of my favorite recent Mm -hmm. filmmakers. The two I'd go with, Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away. Jacques Tati, Mononcle and Playtime were back-to-back, and Pixar has two filmmakers who managed to pull this off. Okay, so Andrew Stanton, of course, one of my honorable mentions yep. with Finding Nemo and Wally. Are we going Brad Bird? Brad Bird's got a trifecta. Wow. The Iron, Iron Giant, Giant, Incredibles, Ratatouille. Yeah, see, Ratatouille doesn't work for me, but the first two, no, you know me. You know me. We've talked At about it all? over the years. It's a good film. I think when I ranked Pixar films in the past year or two on Letterboxd, I had it at ninth or 10th. I know. It's heresy. Uh, what if I convince you, I don't necessarily primarily read it this way, but that it's all about the critic. Then would you like it? Well, then it's sort it of is. about movies. And of then, course it come is. On, nice that, try, that bumps it. Oh. <laughs> nice Anyways, try. James Cameron, Aliens, The Abyss. Mm-hmm. I love The Abyss. Yeah. Terminator 2, Judgment Day. So if you're high on The Abyss, I mean, there's another trifecta. Okay. Well, you mentioned City Lights in Modern Times. You mentioned Andrew Stanton, Nemo, and Wally, The Coen Brothers. Raising Arizona, followed by Miller's Crossing, followed by Barton Fink. So those are three great films. You can pick any two of those. That's where I'd go to with them. Terrence Malick, 
I think you probably left him off or some people did because you can look at the huge gap in time. But there wasn't a big gap in time between Badlands and Days of Heaven. That's true. His first two films. So certainly have to consider those. Tarantino, we can't go Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, but we can go Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. You could. I could. Yes, I will. One of my mid-century masters who I will include since you won't, Robert Bresson, Diary of a Country Priest, followed by Man Escaped. My favorite Brisson film. And then after that, he had Pickpocket. Pick Again, bad. more options. And the only one other than Andrew Stanton that I experienced in real time and really was my indoctrination to Michael Mann was seeing Heat followed by The Insider. Two really wonderful films. Those are our top five, really our top 50 or so <laughs> director, back-to-back movies. That's three shows worth of top five lists, isn't yeah. it? And it's three shows as long, too, Josh. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. We're on Twitter, at Filmspotting is Adam. I'm Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Out in wide release this weekend, the movie Josh has been waiting for for decades, or something like that, Goosebumps, an adaptation of R.L. Stein's children's book series. I was wondering where you were Jack going Black. with that. You can't wait. You love R.L. Stein. So Goosebumps is coming out, huh? Mm-hmm. Bridge of Spies. Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, the Cold War thriller, Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro with Mia Vasakovska, Tom Hiddleston, and Jessica Chastain. They're all together in a haunted house. I think that's the whole plot right there. They're just stuck in a haunted house together. What more do you need? Yeah. Next week, Michael Phillips will be sitting in for me. He'll be talking with Josh about Crimson Peak. They may also get to some thoughts on Bridge of Spies and the top five. Is it? Cold War movies, or are you guys still wrangling on that? We're locked in. Cold You're War locked movies. In. Okay, so where will Rocky Four be on your list? It will not be mentioned. Your entire list is invalid. I'm pretty sure Michael's not going to mention it. You Come never, on. You never know. You but... know what? I'm coming back on the show now. Forget <laughs> it. I, I know I'm out of town, but I'm going to call in or something. I don't even know if I've seen Rocky Four. What about War Games? War Games I haven't seen since I was a kid. Well... I'm going to try That's to take the best way to see. I'm going to games. try to take this list seriously, Adam. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Elvi. It's from the new album Return to the Moon. More information is at elvy.co. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Ted Levine? Levine? I don't know. Oh, come on. I don't know. Come on. I don't. I knew you were going to ask me that. And I was hoping you would just plow ahead. The way things have been lately? I think it's Ted Levine. I'm not going to be able to get four votes. No, because it's not a weird enough name. Let's see. You should say, um, actually, just say, say, no, say, see, yeah, I'll I'll say something. Say it's Ted Levine or Levine, um, and I'll jump in with something. (laughs) Let me at least try to get it right first. That's no fun. Oh, Oh, it's on here. Not that it'll be right. Ted Levine. I think Levine sounds right. Whoever whoever this man is, he's our expert. We're going with it. Ted Levine. Yep.